Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, is Britain sliding to war in the Middle East? Is it already embroiled in conflict? The RAF has once again taken part in US-led attacks on military sites in Yemen, from where Houthi fighters have been targeting cargo vessels in the Red Sea, one of the world's most important commercial shipping routes. This followed similar action on the 11th of January. I told the House last week that we would not hesitate to respond if the acts continue in order to protect innocent lives and preserve the freedom of navigation. And that is what we have done. We acted alongside the United States with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands. We acted on the same basis as the 11th of January, fully in line with international law, in self-defence and in response to a persistent threat. And as with the first wave, the strikes were limited to carefully selected targets with maximum care taken to protect civilian lives. That's Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons. As you've heard there, he insists the UK's military action amounts to nothing more than self-defence. And he's insisted it has nothing whatsoever to do with the conflict between Israel and Gaza. But is that how it will be seen in Yemen itself and more widely in the Middle East? If the Houthis step up their attacks, is there a risk of further escalation, perhaps involving the Houthis back as Iran and their rivals, Saudi Arabia? Let's hear now from David Waring, an expert on UK foreign relations in the Middle East and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex. David, welcome. Uh, I think it might just be useful for some listeners to get an understanding, if they don't have it, of who exactly the Houthis are. My understanding is that in 2014, they successfully overthrew the internationally recognised government of Yemen. Yeah, that's correct. And maybe going a little bit further back, so the Houthis develop as a paramilitary organisation in the north of Yemen. They start to fight a sort of series of small wars with the central government in Yemen over the course of the 2000s. And then your listeners may recall in 2011, there was a series of uprisings against governments right across the Middle East that toppled the central government in Yemen. There was an interim government and a big nationwide argument, debate, discussion, contestation about what the future of Yemen would be. And in that upheaval, in that kind of chaos, the Houthis moved in, seized their chance and toppled, as you say, the internationally recognised government, which was an interim government. They toppled that government. And then that government's international backers, that Saudi Arabia and the UAE principally, backed by the British and backed by the Americans, they launch a war on the Houthis to drive the Houthis back and restore the internationally recognised government. I should say internationally recognised government, but not a government that has had a huge amount of legitimacy within Yemen itself. Not to justify what the Houthis did, but just to give some context. Now, between 2015 and 2022, Saudi Arabia-led coalition wages this war on the Houthis with the aim of not just driving them back, but ultimately defeating them. And it's an absolutely brutal campaign, using, by the way, very similar tactics to what Israel's used in Gaza. So indiscriminate bombing, hitting civilian targets, as well as hitting the military targets, and also a blockade of the rebel-held areas. The apparent idea being that if you squeeze everyone in those areas, they will eventually turn against the rebel group themselves. Now, that didn't work from the point of view of the Saudis and, and their backers. Um, the Houthis not only survived, they're stronger than ever now. The Saudis had to give up 
it was effectively a quagmire from the Saudis' point of view. They went off with their tails between their legs. And in the last sort of year and a half, there's been diplomacy between the Saudis and the Houthis and other parties in Yemen to try and work out what the way forward is and try and work out what the future of Yemen looks like. But at the moment, the Houthis are now the de facto authority in North and West Yemen, which is a big and important chunk of the country. So that's who they are. They went from a paramilitary group to being a de facto state in many ways. And another factor I think that's worth mentioning here is that, as you've said, that they are backed by Iran. They and Iran are predominantly Shia Muslims. The previous internationally recognised government, which had the backing of Saudi Arabia, was predominantly Sunni Muslim. So that is the part of the conflict here, Sunni versus Shia. Old caution against that. I'm glad you raised it because that's often the way that news coverage is framed. And I don't want to say it's irrelevant because these groups, religion is part of how they see the world, part of their framework for making sense of the world and legitimising their own actions is in the form of religion. What I would caution against is perhaps pinning too much of our sort of analysis on that point. For one thing, the version of Shiism that you have in Iran and the version of Shiism that you have in Yemen is actually quite different. To call it Shiism is perhaps to reduce it a little bit. It's quite different. And it's worth remembering as well that in this broader sort of kind of network of states and non-state actors aligned to Iran, you've got the Assad regime in Syria, which is a secular regime. You've got Hamas, which is a Sunni paramilitary organisation. So it's not just about religion. Religion can play a role, but it's by no means the only thing. I mean, the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia, yeah, one side is Shia, the other side is Sunni. But at the same time, one is a revolutionary republic and the other one is a monarchy. And revolutionary republics and monarchies fight for their own reasons. You know, you can imagine why those two groupings wouldn't like each other. And anyone who knows European history would understand that. So religion is not the only part. I think the key way to understand this, for your listeners, is that for a long time, the Iranians have presented themselves as a force of, this is their term, resistance against Western power in the region and the West's allies in the region. And it comes from an anti-colonial tradition, basically, that says the West has had too much of a role in our region for too long. Many of the powers in this region are corrupt, as we see it, Western allies, and so we're pushing back against them. And that is really an important context for understanding why the Houthis have waded into this wider regional conflict with Israel and Hamas at the centre of that conflict. Because Israel is seen as an agent of Western imperialism by those who would regard themselves as the resistance to Western imperialism. Exactly. So why have the Houthis targeted commercial shipping in the Red Sea and are they only targeting ships which have a connection with trade to Israel? Let's do those questions in reverse order. What they've tried to argue are Israeli ships. And in the first few attacks, the connection of Israel was sometimes there, sometimes not, sometimes tenuous. But the attacks have broadened out now to include attacking the Western coalition forces in the Red Sea and commercial shipping more generally. Now, I think the way to look at that is, on the one hand, yes, they do want to hit back against Israel on behalf of the Palestinians. 
and a fair bit of Israel's maritime trade goes through the Red Sea. So you don't necessarily have to hit Israeli shipping to harm Israel. As long as you disrupt shipping through the Red Sea in general terms and make the Red Sea a difficult place to send shipping through, then you're harming Israel. But also, from the point of view, as I say, of this kind of mentality of Israel needs to be confronted and the West needs to be confronted, if you disrupt shipping in the Red Sea, you also hit the West by extension, particularly Europe, given the amount of trade that goes through the Red Sea. And so if you think about the sort of strategic rationale from the Houthis point of view, and from the point of view of the wider sort of network centred around Iran that they're part of, the rationale is this. If Israel is going to wage this war in Gaza, we want to raise the cost to Israel and its Western backers of fighting this war. And where we can do that is through disrupting Red Sea shipping. So from the Houthis' point of view, then, this is directly connected with the conflict between Israel and Gaza, which Israel, of course, would argue was triggered on October the 7th by the horrific massacre, which involved many innocent civilians, but which Israel's opponents would argue began many years earlier, maybe 1948, maybe even before that. But this action in the Red Sea is, from the Houthis' point of view, a response to the conflict now between Israel and Gaza. Yeah, you're right to put it from the Houthis' point of view, but quite frankly, Adrian, it's absurd that this is contested. And the reason it's contested, it seems to me, that the British government in particular have been saying this has got nothing to do with Gaza, is that they know perfectly well how unpopular this Israeli war in Gaza has become. And if trying to justify their attacks on the Houthis, they allow it to be seen to be tied to an unpopular war. That undermines the legitimacy of the actions they're taking against the Houthis. And so they've tried in what seems to me is a really audacious and absurd move to pretend that there's no connection. Well, there's obviously a connection. The Houthis have said this is why they're doing it, and they're not kidding. And it's not as though we don't know perfectly well that this Iran-centered alliance is based in no small part around confronting Israel, whether that's Iran's backing for Hezbollah, whether that's Iran's backing for Hamas, whether it's the sort of, you know, the interworkings between the likes of Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthis, where they share information, they share technology, they share knowledge and techniques and stuff. You know, it's an anti-Western and also an anti-Israel alliance. So it, it should be no surprise whatsoever that at least one actor should wade into this conflict, just as Hezbollah have done to the north. And to pretend that it doesn't have anything to do with that seems to me to be a quite self-serving move from the point of view of the British. At the same time, the UK government will think that here we are in the midst of a cost of living crisis. Any disruption to commercial shipping is likely to lead to delays. It may lead to shipping companies having to go on longer, more circuitous and therefore more expensive routes. So that will hit home to the British consumer. I don't want to ignore the geopolitics of this. That is hugely important, nor the horrendous deaths on both sides of the Israeli-Gaza conflict. That also needs to be addressed. But judge purely on this issue of what the Houthis are doing, impacting upon the British consumer, upon the livelihoods of British people, is the UK government not entitled to say, well, in this respect, we are acting in self-defence. This is directly damaging our interests. Sure. And that is a legitimate thing to be concerned about. 
And I am no less affected by this cost of living crisis, frankly, than many of your listeners. And the last thing any of us want is not only inflation going back up, but also interest rates going back up. Um, the question is, what is the best way to deal with this? And to go back to the point made a minute ago, this all goes back to Gaza. And it all goes back to the Israeli-Hamas war in Gaza. And earlier we talked a little bit about the Houthis, and I mentioned this war that the Saudis and the Emiratis fought against the Houthis for seven years, which achieved the square root of zero. They absolutely pulverized Yemen at that time. Just extraordinary levels of bombing, a really punitive blockade. The UN ended up describing the situation in Yemen as the world's worst humanitarian disaster. And they were clear that's a manufactured, man-made humanitarian disaster caused by the warring parties, including the Houthis, but to a huge extent, the Saudis and the Emiratis. And they did that with British and American assistance. They could not have fought that war without the arms that the British and the Americans supplied them with, particularly the fleets of military jets, which were provided by the British and the Americans, maintained by British and American technicians, British and American trained pilots, etc., etc., etc. So is a military action against the Houthis the way to deal with this threat to Red Sea shipping? Only if you believe that it will take just a few more missiles to deal with the Houthis after seven years of that, not only having no effect, but actually seeing the Houthis become more powerful. So clearly there isn't a military solution to that. And furthermore, I don't imagine that Joe Biden or Rishi Sunak think that there's a military solution to that. The solution is diplomatic. Fundamentally, you attack this crisis at its root, which is what's happening in Israel and Palestine at the moment. There's increasing calls around the world for a ceasefire both because the conflict is escalating and spreading around the region, which is already disastrous, but it could turn even more disastrous for the whole world, depending on the effects on the global economy that you've been talking about, that you asked about. How do we deal with that? We need to get to the heart of the problem, which is Israel-Palestine. In the first instance, it's absolutely urgent that the Americans put serious pressure on the Israelis to stop what they're doing in Gaza. Now, it would be one thing if it was justified. You compare the atrocities on October the 7th, which were absolutely real and illegal and horrific, to what's been visited on the Palestinians, there's no proportion. It's 20 times as many people dead, an infinite multiple of people immiserated. It's creating a whole recruitment pool for Hamas that will keep them in fighters for generations to come. So that needs to stop in and of itself. And also because it's inflaming the situation in the region. I think the reasons the Americans and the British have responded to the Houthis militarily rather than dealing with this situation diplomatically, even though they must know that the diplomatic route is the more promising route to deal with this problem, is because they're committed to Israel's assault on Gaza. Number one, they want that to continue. And number two, they want to be seen to be credible. You don't get to attack us without us hitting back militarily. And that's the language of military power. If people throw a punch at you, you have to be seen to throw a punch back. But, you know, none of this is foregrounding the, the economic needs of the British people. If the interest was in doing that, then you'd say, well, we shouldn't have been back in this Israeli war to begin with. Now we've got an added incentive. Let's put the diplomatic pressure on the Israelis and that will de-escalate the entire situation in the region. When you talk about a diplomatic solution, as you say, there is the possibility of the UK and the US putting pressure on Israel. Both the Western powers want a two-state solution. 
in Israel and Gaza. That has been roundly rejected by the current Israeli government. It has also been rejected in the polls that I've seen by Palestinians as well. So there's no appetite on the ground, it seems to me, for a two-state solution. Can you diplomatically negotiate as well with the Houthis, with Hamas? Hamas are bent on the destruction of Israel, as indeed are Iran, as indeed are the Houthis. So what kind of middle ground can you broker with the various factions? Yeah, and Israel is bent on the destruction of Palestine and has kept it off the map. I think we should take a balanced view of that. But in the end, it seems to me that in terms of the rejectionism on either side, it's important to acknowledge that a pressure can be brought to bear on these different sides by their external backers. And also these individual sides have material self-interest, which can be appealed to, which can be bargained with. You know, it always suits one side to portray the other side as just pathologically hopeful. And that's easier when the other side does something that's objectively horrific. Um, but in the end, neither of these sides are pathologically hateful. They may have both done horrific things. But it seems to me that with the right incentive structure, you can have some kind of outcome. Now, whether that's a two-state settlement or whether that's a single binational state where everyone lives with democracy and human rights, we ourselves live in a country where there's, what, four nations? It's possible to have a single state with different nations in it coexisting. Whatever the situation is, whatever the outcome, it's going to require external pressure. We have seen in the past Palestinian groups saying we accept a two-state settlement. Even Hamas at various points in its history, although it's moved away from that now, I'm talking about the last sort of 10, 15 years, where Hamas has indicated that, look, we don't like this idea of a two-state solution, but if it's what the Palestinian people want and they vote for it in a referendum, then we'll accept it as well. We've seen at different points in history the Palestinians, the general public, accepting it. You know, pressure can be brought to bear and people can be bargained with. In any case, the real obstacle to all this, and this isn't a question of pointing at one side or the other, so much as just being honest about the facts of the matter. The people of the power, not the Palestinians, it's the Israelis, and the people of the ultimate power, not the Israelis, it's the Americans. You know, Israel occupies Palestine. Palestine doesn't occupy any part of Israel. Israel controls all the land from the river to the sea. So if you want, whether it's a two-state settlement or a single democratic state, Israel has to make the concessions. And the only way Israel makes the concessions is if the Americans put the pressure on Israel. So from the point of view of the British, Maybe the British can't put that much pressure on Israel, but they can put pressure on the Americans and say to them, the root of all this is your refusal or failure to push the Israelis to treating the Palestinians like human beings. If you can manage that, then we can de-escalate this whole situation and the economic threat goes away in terms of Red Sea shipping. But the wider threat to the region and the threat that poses to the world goes away as well. What leverage truly does the United Kingdom have? I mean, we have a prime minister and indeed a leader of the opposition in Keir Starmer who are supporting these attacks on the Houthis. There is a reluctance to call for a ceasefire on the part of the UK government, even though clearly many people in the UK wish for that to happen. Even people who are sympathetic to Israel may wish for that to happen. But even if Britain came out and said that, we want a ceasefire, we call on Israel to implement the ceasefire, why would Israel listen to the United Kingdom? Who are we? 
we're a country of a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, which is more than you can say for maybe 95% of the countries in the world system. The way we talk about this country in terms of its international power, I think, is somewhat skewed by virtue of the fact that Britain used to have an empire and now it doesn't. And so we think about Britain as having lost power with Brexit as well. That definitely damaged Britain's influence really severely. And so we think again about how Britain has lost power. We don't think enough about how much power the British state in the world system has retained. You know, with a seat on the UN Security Council, with one of the most powerful militaries outside of the US and China, with one of the biggest economies in the world, with one of the world's biggest financial centres, with the ability, going back to the military, to project military power worldwide, which most countries don't have, with aircraft carriers and nuclear weapons. I mean, the vast majority of countries in the world don't have anything like this. Britain is not a small country, so let's not underestimate the power of the British state. Not at the level of a superpower or an empire, but no less significant than France or Germany. Now, it's not so much Britain taking a position that in and of itself has an effect, the Israelis jumping because the British make a statement, but it's the impact that it has on other states in the system, and it's an impact that it has on public opinion and on the political mood around the world. And it's already a huge amount of pressure on Israel, which is heavily isolated and is effectively being protected by the Americans, whether that's in the Security Council or more generally. Now, if Britain steps out of line, it so rarely does step out of line in terms of its relationship with the Americans. The British shift their position and say, look, this is too much. We can't support this. It's really damaging above all for the Palestinians, but also more generally in the region and to ourselves. It puts enormous pressure on Joe Biden. If it was Donald Trump, there'd be less pressure. He'd be more impervious to pressure. But think about how much pressure Joe Biden is under in an election year where he's shedding support from young people, Arab Americans, from Muslim Americans, constituencies he cannot afford to alienate in a tight election where American democracy itself is at stake. If he then loses the support of one of his few allies on this, the impact of that on American politics, it seems to me, would be really significant. There will be people in Congress, people in his own administration, who are already unhappy and already raising their voices behind closed doors. Diplomats in the State Department who keep speaking up behind closed doors about this, those voices would be so much louder. You know, We've even lost the British, even the pathetic British have finally stood up for themselves or dared to contradict us. So I think actually the British can have a role to play, definitely. But on the assumption that the British government isn't listening to you, David, is there a danger to go back to the question that I asked right at the start of this conversation about Britain getting embroiled in a war in the Middle East? I just want to preface that question by saying that I was having a conversation with my 16-year-old daughter the other day, and as one conflict escalates into another, I said, people look back on World War One and they ask the question, how did World War One start? And it didn't start with two great big empires or two great big warring armies facing up to each other in a particular location. One thing led to another. There was an escalation. And I don't want to be an apocalyptic doomonger. I'm not saying that's where we are heading. But anybody with a, a knowledge of history will fear that that may be where we're heading. Yeah. And if you think about World War One, a big aspect of that was the fact that Germany probably did want a war, but most powers didn't. And 
one of the reasons it escalated from conflict between Serbia and, and Austria-Hungary to a wider conflagration is these different ties between different states and the fact that you had these power blocks facing off against each other. And so all it takes is a little spark. And then when people start fighting, their allies get drawn in and suddenly it's a wider conflict. And it's not even a question of saying this could happen. It is happening. Between Hamas and Israel, we now have Hamas's allies, that Iran-led bloc with Hezbollah, the Houthis, and, you know, and various militia in Syria and Iraq, on the one hand, all involved in various ways, militarily, over the last few months, and Israel on the one hand, but also its international allies, now actively involved in this wider struggle. So this is already happening. These connections and these alliances are dragging people into a wider conflict. I don't think the British necessarily want, and the Americans want, and I don't think the Iranians want, a wider regional war. But they're not incentivized enough, or they're not keen enough to avoid doing the things that would stop that, particularly in terms of the American support for Israel. And also, there are actors in here who do want a wider conflict. The Houthis are overconfident, belligerent, hubristic. They fought off the Saudis with the British and the Americans behind them. They're feeling probably a little bit too confident about what they can do. Hamas clearly wanted to flip the whole table diplomatically when they did their attack on October the 7th. And with Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu knows he's screwed politically and perhaps even legally because of his problems the minute this war is over. And so there are actors in this, Hamas, the Houthis and Israel, who want this war to continue, and that can be enough, um, coupled with the other factors we mentioned, to cause an even wider regional war than we've already got. You did call out the United States for its continued support of and protection for Israel. Does the same not apply to Iran for its continued support for and protection of the Houthis? Yeah, if there's a solution to all this, it's going to involve... The Americans pulling the plug on Israel's war in Gaza, which, by the way, they could do in five minutes if they really wanted to. But it also has to involve region-wide diplomacy, and it has to involve the Americans talking to the Iranians. Because, as I've indicated, I don't think there's a military solution available to the British and the Americans in terms of the Houthis. It seems to me it needs negotiation. And the people you need to negotiate with are both the Houthis and Iran. The Houthis aren't an Iranian puppet, they're an Iranian ally. But if you bring all the allies of the two blocks together. It can be direct diplomacy, it can be indirect diplomacy. There's different ways of doing it. But you have to involve everyone in some way and then create an incentive structure. Each side needs to be able to create an incentive structure for the other side to make some form of coexistence workable. And I would just add, because it's always the people who are calling for military action who portray themselves as realists and who portray people who want diplomacy as being unrealistic. The Chinese brought the Iranians and the Saudis together last year and they brokered a kind of detente. And people have been talking for a long time about how the Iranians and the Saudis were at each other's throats and this was just a pathological hatred between the two of them. And then the Chinese came in and brokered a limited detente and it has had some effect. It had an effect on the war in Yemen, where the Saudis and the Houthis started to negotiate. So all of this is possible. All of this is possible. And the responsibility falls on the leading side, the Americans and the Iranians, to start talking and stop escalating. David, thank you so much for your time. That's David Waring from the University of Sussex. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times 
If you haven't read it yet, well, you don't know what you're missing. It's a fantastic monthly newspaper. And if you take out a subscription, a copy will land on your doormat every single month. Or you can buy one on selected newsstands as well. But if you do want to take out a subscription, head over to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And also don't forget to follow our substack at bylinesupplement.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production produced by me, Adrian Goldberg and Harvey White in Birmingham. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye. <laughs>